It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the community radio network and podcast on the internet at 3cr.org.au. Both the community show and this show are now also available on iTunes and Stitcher. Please subscribe and rate us to help others find the shows. My name is Natalie Bucknell and I'm joined today by my co-host Kay Wenigal. Hi Nat. Hi listeners. Hi Kay. So the All Energy Conference was held in Melbourne recently and amongst other activities, I dropped into a breakout group on microgrids. Dr. Adrian Pano was chairing the session and discussing a new microgrid at the Warren Ponds campus of Deakin University, south of Melbourne. But there's a lot more to Deakin Energy than just the microgrid. So we're delighted to have Adrian in the studio today to give us the extended story of Deakin Energy. Adrian has over 20 years experience as a senior executive and advisor in the resources, agriculture, manufacturing and renewable energy fields across government, private and research sectors. And he is currently the director of Deakin Energy. Hi, Adrian. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Adrian, what can you tell us about the Deakin Energy Initiative? It's a recognition that the energy transition isn't solved with a, a device, a widget. It's an actual transaction. So Deakin Energy uh, is a university-wide initiative. It, uh, it moves across from business and law through to uh, environmental science through to engineering and our various institutes because that's how the energy transaction works. It's, uh, it's that combination of regulation, of technology, and particularly about human behaviour change. So wow. It's like a little community. Yes, and really multidisciplinary approach. It is, um, and the community... Uh, Within Deakin, so four and a half thousand staff, over sixty thousand students, wow. uh, is is quite representative of, mm. of a community. So, when was it formed, Deakin? Uh, just over two years ago, uh, when I joined Deakin, and uh, it, so it is an experiment in itself, uh, and. Uh, I report to the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research uh, quite intentionally not to set up a new school or a new, new research centre. Uh, it is to ensure that I do work right across the university. And so what are the main objectives of Deakin Energy? It's to address the um, not only Australian but global uh, emerging is issues in the, the energy transition. We, we are moving from uh, a centralised energy system, uh, quite traditionally based, uh, to one that is more decentralised, uh, greater penetration of distributed energy, uh, ranging from a solar panel on a roof through to, uh, in our case, uh, larger combinations, multiple energy sources, storage, and particularly uh, with demand management coming into that, that you, you can't simply keep adding generation. You need to actually 
consider what you're doing with that, uh, with the electricity or other forms of energy. Uh, so the objective is to, th there's a great deal of knowledge within not only Deakin but other universities in Australia and globally. How do you actually bring that together, particularly when it needs to be a multidisciplinary approach? How do you bring that to bear on a particular problem that governments have or industry has? Um, they can actually trust you, that you're not selling a, a solution, you're actually understanding their problem and recognising that you need more than a, an expert, you need a collection of experts. So what university departments are involved? Uh, the, uh, it, it's all of them. I've mentioned business and law, even within business and law, uh, we have um, the, the legal department, uh, people like Professor Samantha Hepburn, who's been recently uh, commenting on the, um, on the gas uh, market. Disaster. Uh, yeah, <laughs> the, um, uh, a group uh, within, um, uh, Associate Professor Josh Newton works on um, human behaviour uh, from a marketing perspective around demand management. How do you incentivise someone to reduce their consumption? How do you incentivise them to go to the movies instead of switching on their air conditioner? And then through to a group uh, of econometricians who work on forecasting. And that group there is now working with a group of um, engineers out of the School of Engineering uh, who are experts in the Internet of Things. So that group is providing and taking data even out of our own microgrid and providing it and talking to the econometricians so they can use that data to start forecasting supply and demand. Uh, so business and law, um, our education group looking at more global issues, uh, obviously engineering, um, probably the one that we don't directly touch on um, is the sports science people. However, uh, Deakin is entering a, a race car into the World Solar Challenge in 2021, the Darwin to Adelaide race uh, that is involving about 260 students. I've got a tip for you. Um, Make it a bit heavier because evidently a lot of them were blown over by the winds this year. They were this year and so we, we are uh, entering the cruiser class which requires passengers and uh, so the link to, to sport and health the temperatures in the cars get to 50 degrees. Gee. So the, that, as part of that program will be development of, of, of the health of the driver and the passengers. That's wonderful. And it's interesting you're saying about the econometrician angle on things because data was a really strong theme at All Energy Conference recently, mm. data and energy and the links and connections around that? What are you finding in that area? Uh, they are inseparable uh, and not only uh, data and energy but data uh, as it relates to, to water, to telecommunications. All of the infrastructures are intersecting uh, and there's a particular uh, expertise within Deakin at looking at what happens at the nodes, what happens when they intersect, how do you increasingly, um, it's the data that drives system behaviour without anyone in the middle of that making a decision. Uh, so the water industry uh, controlling valves is, is a data-driven device, but you need an electrical network to make sure your valve is driven. But the traditional way of mapping these systems, generally the, the engineer sitting in the back corner who designed it and is in their head, 
that no longer applies. The system changes too quickly and you need to know the multiple layers of where do they intersect, how do they work together. And so you've got data driving all that and then you, so within the data layer you need to know it has integrity, that it's actually correct. Um, and a particular focus we have in the energy space is around uh, cybersecurity uh, for data. Uh, again, multiple layers to that, ranging from uh, the um, what perhaps people think of front of mind is the the hacking side of someone's going to mess with the data, but it's it's around privacy as well. You can now see behaviour of people according to their metering data, water, electricity, whatever. Is that okay? Have you asked the person whether you can use their data? How are you going to use it? And most people, after you ask them, are quite okay with that. But they do need to be asked. Yes, uh, absolutely. And the other angle on it that was coming up at the conference a lot was how can this data be turned into alternative value streams? So that's another interesting aspect and touches on those privacy issues as well. It does. Um, you can use data to to benefit people enormously. And, and in many cases, uh, people don't really need to know the detail. They need the benefit. So if you can use that data with their permission to, to deliver that benefit without them having to make decisions and intervene, you actually benefit the uh, particular parts of the community. The, and, in, and in general, the, the lower socioeconomic sectors within the community either don't have the knowledge or don't have the time or don't have the health to make those decisions. And, and so it is incumbent on, on government and, and on organisations, whether they're public or private, to, to actually make use of that data. And we, we now have the technical capability to do that. Yeah, I guess there's two angles on that value, isn't there? There's business extracting profit from it, but there's also the value of extra assistance and service that can be delivered through it. It does. And, and it is – so profit is, is often a, a, a good driver of, of creation of, of, of innovation. You know, innovation in itself is taking knowledge and effectively producing a commercial product to make that benefit in many cases. And uh, w w during the, uh, the microgrid session um, at All Energy, we, we touched on the Indian uh, microgrid program. And yeah, now please tell, tell us about that. Talking about hot temperatures. Hot yes. temperatures. <laughs> and uh, yes, uh, in, in the middle of the year, uh, the week before I arrived in at New Delhi, it was 48 degrees. Mm. <laughs> unbearable. The, the, um, but the, this um, integrated energy program that uh, Deakin is convening or coordinating, it's not a, a Deakin program. It, it involves now um, 30 or 40 Indian organisations, both public and private sector. One of the observations there uh, is that there are around 150 or so microgrids in, in India. 150 of various flavors from very small to, to quite quite large and it's it's understood that about three quarters of them aren't functioning either nowhere near as well as they should be or not at all oh. and what it it seems to and so we are doing some analysis around what what the reason for that is but in many cases it appears that the the funding for those projects um, came from either NGOs or other third parties and the projects themselves were not commercial so the electricity was either too expensive or didn't have the qualities wasn't wasn't as reliable and particularly uh, there was no knowledge 
retained within the communities where those microgrids were built. So if something goes wrong, if something needs to change, there's no one local to do that. Uh, and, and You're referring to renewables? Um, they're, they're both. They're, they're, um, uh, they can have gas as a um, you know, micro turbines or even small amounts of gas as a uh, as part of that mix. But generally, they are solar, um, uh, some wind, uh, but it's, they're not exclusively renewable. Hmm. But they are certainly cleaner than uh, than the traditional grid. Um, so this commerciality. Um, if you don't have that, at the end of the day, electricity is a commodity. It, it, it has a price, it has value. You actually need a price, otherwise it's wasted. And it's the same with water. If you don't value water appropriately, people will waste it. Hmm. Um, you need to find that balance, of course, uh, but, it, um, but that's one aspect. Where you, that's a really interesting that, learning, yeah. isn't it? That you, you think that it's you know, just helping out, but you do need to structure it appropriately to make it sustainable. I think they found that even with light globes when they were introducing solar-powered lighting into India. They had to get the communities to take responsibility for them, to buy them, to understand how they work before they were actually able to implement that project. Yes, yeah. Um, And by doing that, uh, I've uh, have, uh, become aware of a, a project in Sumba, um, one of the Indonesian islands near East Timor, where they have electrified uh, many the, the village. And, and the greatest benefit there has been uh, to women because it, uh, many of the tasks the women were doing were, were quite manual, grinding and, and so on. By electrifying it, you've actually allowed um, women to, to, pr- to develop a new enterprise. They, they've develop a, developed a weaving enterprise, um, mm. which they wouldn't have been able to do because they they were using their own energy to, mm. to conduct tasks. But uh, what made me think of it was the, um, the as they have uh, this new solar microgrid type arrangement, they are billing uh, the various villages for their electricity consumption. And it's the women who are, who are delivering the accounting system and chasing up bills because they're so much better at the detail. Mm. And, and again, it, it's lifted their value in the community. Are uh, they standalone grids? Uh, they are because there's no grid there at all. Uh, and so yes. they are so each a of them true are micro- microgrid. They are not grid connected. Um, and, and you mentioned that there were health benefits to um, substituting electric cooking for you know fire cooking yes um the 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 figures are for indoor pollution we, t- we tend to think about outdoor pollution being a, an issue but uh the numbers are quite staggering that there are 3.8 million women and children predominantly who die annually from indoor pollution mm. and it's stag- cooking. cooking yeah however the the subtlety there it was a a um some work that the United Nations um, SCAP group uh, has done recently looking at uh, clean cooking. And they've they found that you can't simply tell people to change their behaviour because cooking, some, some meals taste better on wood. Yes. Others, you can use an electric fry pan, but using an electric wok doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And, and so you do need to, again, be very aware of your impact on, on human 
uh, human issues and, and behaviour. I'll just finish off on the Indian side. The, the other part of the Indian landscape um, is that they have huge targets. The government has huge targets for uh, wind and solar in, in the hundreds of gigawatts. Um, and so you've got investment flowing at two ends of the chain, one or, or the, the environment. One is into the microgrid space and the other one is into the grid space. So our program is how do you how do you get the two talking to each other? How do, traditionally we've balanced the the grid uh, and provided grid services, frequency control and other contingency stability services, if you like, um, with uh, things like gas generation or um, now uh, some batteries. Well, the microgrids can provide that service as well, as long as they are configured appropriately, where you can they technically and commercially talk to each other. And then at the same time... So you're uh, speaking about a microgrid con connected into a larger grid. Larger grid, that's yeah. right. Uh, and uh, it, um, at the same time, the, the markets in India and, and globally, uh, we, we can't just think of Australia as being advanced here. The, the whole world is moving ahead, including many countries through Central Asia who are looking at energy security and separating from the, the traditional producers of, of, uh, of energy. Um, th this whole virtual layer of uh, creating markets, of being able to trade uh, separate to the actual transfer of electrons. So you've got two things happening at the same time, huge technology development at a very rapid rate and a market emerging where not only did a market not exist in electricity, markets didn't exist and, and so how do, you, how do you get people to participate? How do you ensure people aren't left out along this journey as well? And uh, so it's a fascinating place to work. It, it is, and there's layers upon layers. If you've just tuned in, we're talking to Dr. Adrian Pano from Deakin Energy. Uh, look, we could <laughs> delve into that a lot further, but there's other great stuff to talk about as well, Adrian. So can we chat a bit about the microgrid at Warren Ponds and what Deakin Energy is doing there, please? So what is the, the microgrid there? The, the and, microgrid. And what is it servicing? Yes. So, Give um, us the full context. Um, the Warren Ponds campus of... Uh, uh, of Deakin University, about 70 kilometres to the west of Melbourne, um, is is unique in that it uh, has 325 hectares uh, of okay, land that's, on the that's campus. That's a lot of real estate. It, it is for a lot of real estate, and quite um, uniquely, compared to say many other agricultural campus university campuses, it has our engineering school, it has our medical school, uh, it has a hundred ton per year carbon fibre plant in Carbon Nexus. It has a, a range of spin-off companies and associated companies in advanced manufacturing. Uh, Carbon Revolution, Quick Step. There's uh, a wow, chain of them. Very diverse. It's not it, what you first has, think of for that's a university. Right. And it has student accommodation as well. And so the campus has an annual consumption of about 21 gigawatt hours. It, it's a town. It's a, it uh, is, and, isn't it? Uh, and so it presented quite a unique opportunity. We had the land. We have uh, the northern part of the campus is advanced manufacturing. The southern was agriculture and energy. And we have a lovely north-facing slope. So a decision was made several years ago by the university that it has an energy capability. It has a real commitment to sustainability. So um, Deakin is a signatory to the UN Sustainable Development Goals uh, as a university okay. signatory and an ambition to uh, be carbon neutral by 2030. 
and some, it's got a big carbon footprint. And we have growing six, over sixty thousand students, um, buildings to accommodate them. Uh, how do you how do you match those two up? And so the opportunity to do something on campus behind the meter was was perfect. perfect. Yeah. And so the microgrid itself. Um, consists of uh, about 7 megawatts of ground mount single axis tracking solar and that has now been installed uh, 250 kilowatts of rooftop solar some of the existing systems but also multiple small systems um, small to medium uh, ranging between 30 kilowatts to 158 uh, and small batteries within some of the buildings and then a megawatt two megawatt hour central battery all linked together with a microgrid controller um, a separate fiber optic network to ensure cyber uh, cyber security is appropriate and it will it will function as a um, as a standalone power system although grid connected which was the other benefit we are connected to the 22 kV grid so we, we actually so, feed out so we feed out process. our intention is not to feed out and capture as much value as we can. But equally, it, it's that Indian example where a microgrid is grid-connected. Uh, so it becomes a, uh, a research tool. We're developing even the forecasting project that I mentioned before is actually taking data out of our buildings already and starting to look at micro-forecasting. So this uh, was actually um, first mooted in 2017 yes. and said to go online in 2019, but I just noticed you say said will, not are. Yes. So we're, we're envisaging going online uh, in the first half of next year. Um, it, it's taken a little longer for a couple of reasons. We brought the project in-house. We, 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 we have engaged our own engineers um, and actually, again, uniquely for a university, we've used our own knowledge. So our, our battery hub group, uh, 50, 60 researchers in batteries, have advised on battery types, have advised on ethical procurement of, of the battery. Um, so our, what battery type did you land um, on? We're, we're landing on um, still a lithium-based, but lithium ferrous phosphate, lithium iron phosphate, to, to avoid uh, the use of cobalt. It, um, Does that make it more expensive? It, it makes it um, a little more expensive. It, it's a bigger footprint, but it may have, um, well, we understand it has better characteristics for a stationary type applications. A bigger footprint doesn't matter when you've got how many hectares? Lots of space, <laughs> yes. yes. It, uh, uh, so it, um, it, it, it's fitness for purpose. We had that uh, ability to make those decisions. And then we went through a full um, local government planning process. So community engagement, uh, cultural heritage, um, the country fire authority. So it's developed a great deal of knowledge in the community doing it, but that's taken time. Yes. And the time, unfortunately, has meant that uh, procurement of some equipment, such as transformers, um, which are used in every type of infrastructure, whether it's rail or uh, road, rail, wherever you need a big transformer, same thing. And so many of those uh, um, development times have, have blown out. And so we are um, experiencing what a real project experience yes. experiences. And we've retained that knowledge and now can pass it on. And so we've uh, had interest from uh, the Asian Development Bank, from Indian institutions, from there was a person in the audience from um, uh, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade who's looking at where are the exemplar projects? What can Australia contribute as far as knowledge and real experience? And and that's what we're hoping to achieve and, and, and are achieving already. 
And I guess it's a question of how many academics does it take to change a light bulb as well. You introduce a lot of different layers by having your research element and your advisory elements. It does, yes. It it, it does. It, it adds a layer. And as you would have heard during the, the session, uh, there does need to be... Um, clarity about your objective uh, otherwise you can be making those sorts of decisions and having the discussions forever but at some point we'll, we'll, uh, we'll achieve this first phase and we're already looking at what do we do beyond this adding different types of generation we're starting with solar can we do small-scale wind can we do hydrogen as a storage medium can we do micro hydro the grid enables us to do that we've made this investment in the grid connection in 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 actual positioning in the control system adding on is what we're looking for and, in the future. And that means forgetting about it, getting to 100% renewables in terms of electricity supply to the campus, but being able to get to 200, 300, 700%, so you can feed it out to the grid or you can create other industries using that excess power. Some of the buildings will be energy positive. We're seeing that already from their own solar. Um as a research objective, uh, we made the decision that uh, islanding, disconnecting from the grid, or producing far more than we needed to, there was limited research that uh, benefit to to Deakin it, itself. Uh, so we, we I chose can imagine to invest the carbon elsewhere. fibre. Um Surprisingly little, and the, the particular um, part of the intellectual property that Deakin has is how to reduce the electricity and energy need for carbon fibre by about 30%. Mm -hmm. Just... Trying to get back to India, yes. <laughs> you mentioned before the show about what Deacon does in India in terms of, yes. of students. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Yes. Very, very, brief, very, very briefly. Um, Deacon has a very long history in India, 25 years, first university there. We have about 90 uh, in-country PhD students who are uh, Indian nationals working with Indian organisations. Uh, and they undertake a PhD that uh, that Deakin supports and they spend their six months of their, their program in Australia and complete their, their degree. Uh, so they, they get the benefit of academic... So they're studying academic. in India, but in they India. come out here yeah, for Yeah, so they're experience. working in India. They, well, they come out for research to undertake the final part of their research in Australia. That's fantastic. Very interesting. Great job. It's amazing what Deacon seems to be doing in this area. Very impressive. And Thank what, you. If, so for listeners who want to follow up on this, what, what are the avenues for them? Uh, the microgrid itself, uh, deacon.edu.au slash microgrid will take you through to the project. Okay, and Deakin Energy, they can just Google that. Uh, that. That website is probably a good place to start and it'll take you back to Deakin Energy. But if you Google Deakin Energy, it, it will come up. I think everyone's going to be wanting to go down to Warren Ponds and mm. have a play with the, mm. <laughs> all the opportunities. I think you're doing there. another degree now. Yes. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> so thank you very much for joining us today, Adrian. Pleasure. We've been speaking to Dr Adrian Pano from Deakin Energy. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the climate change solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated all around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Previous episodes of the show are available on iTunes and Stitcher. Please subscribe to help others find the show. If you've enjoyed the program and can donate to help cover airtime costs and keep us on the air, please go to the BZE website and click on that donate button. Thanks for listening and we look forward to you joining us again next week. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. 
Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.